Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome back to Who's Talking. He is a legendary record producer who's worked with everyone from Simon and Garfunkel to Santana, Alicia Keys to Biggie Smalls. He's been called a hit addict and the music man. The question is, how does he do it? I worked a lot on this question, Alex. Hey, so, can I attempt to do <laughs> Are you always like this? Are you saying parents are wrong? Yes. Will you come back? Yes, okay. of course I will. Clive Davis, welcome. I am so delighted that you agreed to come in and sit down and talk with me. My pleasure to be here. By the way, do you know what Biggie Smalls, notorious B.I.G., do you know what his real name was? I think it was Chris Wallace. That's exactly right. We didn't prepare this, but I just flashed yes. on And it. let me tell you, the morning that I came downstairs, opened the paper, and see the headline, Christopher Wallace struck down in a hail of bullets. Oh, my God. It was not a good start to the day. <laughs> you have been discovering artists and finding material for them to work with for more than half a century. And as I was thinking about sitting down with you today, I kept asking myself, how does he do it? Now, I know that you're known in the music business as the man with the, quote, golden ear, but, but take us inside your process. What are you looking for specifically? It depends on whether you're looking at an entertainer, an entertainer being an Aretha Franklin or Whitney Houston or Dion Warwick. Uh, or whether you're looking at a self-contained folk singer, folk rock singer, self-contained artist that writes his or her own material. So that for the entertainer, um, you're looking for uniqueness, you're looking whether the combination of presence, charisma, you're looking at evaluating that voice. Is it a once in a lifetime voice? Uh, so there are a few of those, not many, but there are a few and, of those. And when you say you're looking for these things, I mean, is there any metric? Is there any uh, analytics? Or is it just, I, I feel well, it, I think it. With me, it's just a natural gift, if you will, that I never knew I had. There's no metrics. There's no study. It's just both a combination of common sense, trusting your ear and your instinct. How special is this. When it's someone like a Patti Smith, when it's someone like a Bruce Springsteen, you're obviously evaluating the material. How unique is it? How special is it? How does it, is it going to revolutionize uh, the current music scene? How effective, powerful, impactful? We have some video of you in your listening sessions, and let's take a look at it. Okay. Oh, 
So I have a couple of questions here. One, does it help you understand the music better if you're swaying back and forth? And two, I see you here in a group with a bunch of people. Is it a group decision, whether we're going to take this artist or do this song, or is it all on Clive Davis? Usually <clears throat> the audition would be for me and one or two A&R persons. So that a group scene that you might have been, I just got a flashing glance. It could have been a meeting, an A&R meeting, listening to music and not being a live audition because we would have weekly singles meetings or artist evaluation meetings. But for auditioning an artist historically, um, it would be me with one A&R person. That's the way and it And A&R means what? Artist and repertoire. That kind of artist that you're involved either with someone, an artist who writes his or her own material, or repertoire. Someone like Whitney who did not write, but is dependent on the repertoire. And, and I, I mean, I was just fascinated by it, because you're sitting there listening to music, but you're kind of moving back and forth. Why? I don't do it uh, premeditatively, and just getting a glimpse of it, I didn't even know. I mean, I'm feeling the music, so I let my body flow naturally, and that's what happens. Over the years, music has evolved from pop and rock to R&B and hip-hop with plenty of stops along the way, and you have evolved along with it over, as I say, half a century. How do you stay current? You know how you stay current? I worry a lot. And I'm always, many years ago, when I was much younger, I was still intent on not going over the hill. I saw so many contemporary colleagues get rooted steadfastly in the music that he or she grew up with. And I was intent, still intent, on that not happening to me. And so going decades ago, Anytime a record reaches the top 10, even before video, whether it be pop, rock, R&B, if you will, I listen to it. Now, of course, I watch the video behind it just to see what records are currently making the charts and successful. So that, because often, even from an artist, they will play a piece of music for you and I will know it's dated. I will know this record would have been a hit 10 years ago, five years ago. It no longer would be a hit today. And um, so I study it and I work at it. I keep that work ethic high and I keep my current listening very intense. Clive, are you ever wrong? Do you ever pass on an artist who ends up becoming a big star or, a star? or conversely, you bet on an artist who goes nowhere. Well, let's take the first one, okay? And it's a story I really don't know if I've told before. I don't know if I have the minutes, whatever it is, I'm gonna tell the story. Good, um, we like new stories. The biggest artist that I ever passed on was John Cougar Mellencamp. And really? when I auditioned John Mellencamp, he was very close to an artist that I did sign at the start, and that was Bruce Springsteen. And so I passed on him. So fast forward to about 
12 years ago, and I was standing with Bruce Springsteen, with Jackson Brown, with Don Henley, and with John Mellencamp, okay? So the five of us sat down at table for dinner. I'm being the only, quote, suit, unquote. I said, you are the most famous artist that I ever passed on. And it's so ironic that it's me, Bruce, and you. (laughs) And it's all Bruce's fault because... (laughs) He says, let me tell you, and let me tell, he wheeled around, Bruce, you were the biggest influence on me. I was not the same guy that wrote Jack and Diane. I was not the same guy that I'd become. I was starting out, feeling my way, beginning writing. My biggest influence was you. And he looked at me eye to eye, and he said, Clive, I was too close to Bruce when I auditioned for you. So you were right. Even when you were wrong, you were right. But the fact (laughs) is, I did pass. Anyway, but it it did relieve a lot of uh, anguish, if you will. Let's go back to 1967. You have come to Columbia Records as a lawyer, but by now you're the head of the company, even though you don't know that much about music. You go to the Monterey Pop Festival, and there you see a group called Big Brother and the Holding Company with a lead singer named Janis Joplin, and here she is in her performance of Ball and Chain. Take a look. It So, when you see Janis Joplin, what do you think? You still get shivers up your spine. There was no one like her. She was one of a kind. And I'm sitting in an audience with my wife at the time, not knowing that I'd be seeing young artists. I was really there to see Simon and Garfunkel, the Mamas and Papas, the first pop festival. I'm in a tennis sweater over khaki pants. Everyone, I didn't know that San Francisco was the hubbub of wearing flowers in your hair, and they're all garlands of roses and long gowns, etc. I was the one out of sword, but I realized it was, I'm sitting unbeknownst at the beginning of a musical revolution, amplification of the electric guitar for the first time. No way in our men or women with me, I'm there alone, never dreaming that I would ever sign an artist. Okay, but let's talk about that, because you decide to buy the band and its lead singer out of its contract that it already has with another record company for $200,000, which was real money back then. And a year later, the band, Joplin, you, have a big hit with Cheap Thrills. Uh, A couple of questions. One, how scary for a neophyte like you to sign your first band. All right, so we're going to what I just said. I'm in the audience. I'm getting shivers. I'm getting an epiphany. I've got to sign this artist. And was I concerned? Was I nervous about it? Absolutely. It was never within my contemplation. But I said, I know in my bones that this is someone that has never appeared on the scene. Uh, White soul system with fervent and electrifying charisma. So yes, I bought the contract. 
yes, we prepared, you know, with her going in the studio. Yes, she proudly brought me her album. Yes, I convinced her to edit a piece of my heart to be a single, okay? And um, that group with the electric flag and soon after Blood, Sweat and Tears, yeah, they were to change music and I was proud that I signed all three of them. So, two years later, in 1970, Janis Joplin dies of a heroin overdose and you have your first exposure to artists, young artists, and their demons. What did you learn from that? Other than pain, other than the tragedy of prematurely taking someone that gifted, um, I guess the most powerful, because I had no idea she was using hard drugs. I knew that she was drinking Southern Comfort or Jack Daniels. I never knew her private life. Um, the power of drugs. No one wins that battle. So that, I guess, the everlasting lesson is without any a foreknowledge, um, you don't win that battle. That's a lethal battle that has got to be won. In the early 70s, you're dealing with a very different artist, Barry Manilow. Now, I can't imagine two personalities more different than Janis Joplin and Barry Manilow. What did you see in him? That's an interesting question because I went to see him open for Dion Warwick and in Central Park, okay, and I saw him as a great entertainer. I saw someone very gifted, very likable, very a very nice voice, and I saw him more in the line of an Andy Williams, of a Sinatra, of a Johnny Mathis, of a different, unique kind of performer. So I signed him. When we came to the, listen to the album that he was working on, I didn't hear a single. And so I said, Barry, we have to look for an outside song because we need a single. You're a pop artist. Okay, let me interrupt you right here because by this point you've started your own new studio, Arista, and you come up with this song for Barry. Take a look. Looking in their eyes, I see a memory. The song goes to number one. Barry Manlow becomes a huge star. Why did you think Mandy was the right song for Barry Manilow? That was the first time I was testing my ears on songs because at Columbia, during that uh, seven or eight year period, I had signed only self-contained artists, artists, you know, that in effect, that wrote their own material, Earth, Wind, and Fire, and Billy Joel, and Springsteen. But with a pop artist and being a brand new label, I had to test, could I identify hit songs for artists that didn't write? The point, Chris, that I want to make to you 
is that Barry Manilow only considered himself a singer-songwriter. So for me to even suggest that he do an outside song created not a rift, but a real conversation, intense point. Will he do an outside song? Because he only thought of himself as a writer. And he finally did. I brought him, the song was called Brandy at the time. We changed it to Mandy because there had been a hit Brandy, you're a fine one by the group Looking Glass. Right. He first arranged it. He listened to the demo. It was more up-tempo. It was more rock-oriented. But we started our relationship, which would blossom to this day. I'm going to see him uh, always in well, concert. Let me, let me pick up on that, because as you say, the, the rift, if you want to call it that, whatever, the difference of opinion is, He's a songwriter. He's going to decide his songs. And you say, I can come up with better material for you and bigger hit material for you. And then you come up with this song. Take a look. Oh, okay. I write songs that make young girls cry. I write the songs. I write the songs. Which, of course... He didn't write. So you're asking him, sing a song called I Write the Songs to a songwriter, but it's a song he didn't write. How well, did he, he react to that? that? And it's a famous story. But look, we had a multi-year association and we exchanged. He wrote hits. He did not, let's not imply that Barry was no, he wrote this one for you. He wrote Copacabana. I mean, he wrote one voice. And I gave him, looks like we made it. I made it through the rain. He would give me two songs after Mandy went to number one. He would give me two songs. Two songs on, on his album that you you could choose for. Each album, right. right. And Knockwood, that each song I gave him, he arranged. He was part of the creative process. He found what I was thinking, even though the demo always surprised him that I would be submitting it. And we really had a fabulous relationship of hit after hit after hit. But did he, I mean, I read somewhere that when you're saying, I want you to sing this song you didn't write called I Write the Songs, that he was taken a little aback by it. Well, he very literally took the line, I write the songs the whole world sings. He thought it was very vainglorious, very egocentric, and he was literally uh, thrown by the braggadocio uh, of that line, so that we really, he did retreat for several months until, as he does say in interviews today, he learned to sit, study, and try to find what I was hearing, that I was thinking this song could be a giant hit. And he always, he did always succeed in doing that arrangement that brought these songs to the top of the charts. He's the number one AC performer artist of all time. In 1983, you go to see a pretty unknown teenager named Whitney Houston. And in the first two albums that you two do together, she has 
seven, we have the picture up here of the two of you celebrating, a record seven consecutive number one singles, including this one. How quickly did you know with Whitney Houston, this is a generational star? I knew immediately. I was seeing her at a club called Sweetwaters. Her mother was uh, the star of the show. She was a background singer doing two songs in the middle of her mother's act. And she stepped to the microphone. Her choice of material, I was just there as a, uh, guests. Right. There were a few hundred other people there who had paid. And she sang two songs. One was Home from the Broadway show The Wiz, and the other was The Greatest Love of All, a song I had commissioned for the life of Muhammad Ali. I had the original record with George Benson. This I is was... 1983, and you remember, you still remember this specifically? Absolutely. I mean, of course you do. It's a lifetime memory. But uh, okay, and you also, hear that? I've got to tell you, it's like yesterday. Okay, so it's not that I'm going back. Right, right. Uh, Forty years. Um, and what did you think? I was amazed that she found more meaning in that song than I believe that Michael Massa and Linda Creed when they wrote it that this was a unique vocalist who was breathing fire and soul and heart into a song I was so familiar with. I had commissioned it eight years ago, <laughs> and I knew that her gift was unique without question. Now, I, I heard a story about that song, which was one of the big hits, one of the number ones, Dance with somebody that when you first heard the arrangement, it was kind of light, and you said, I got to put more pop in it. I got to put more bass in it. Why? Let me translate what you just said. Okay. I heard. Because <laughs> you understand it better than I do. I heard a demo from yeah. the writers. The writers come to me, right. and they play a demo of a song. And the demo singer could have been Olivia Newton John. And that if you took it literally, you would never think that that is a song that Whitney Houston should record. It was much too middle-of-the-road mainstream pop. But in my head, you hear, I heard an arrangement. And knowing Whitney's soulfulness, natural soulfulness, I knew that she would sing, I want to dance with somebody, but that she would make the audience feel, I want to go to bed with somebody. She knew that she would come up with the sexuality and the heat of it and the, uh, the arrangement that we would work on so that it's not literally adopting and doing a demo the way you hear the demo. It's what the demo should be translated into. And Whitney and I collaborated all those years, and we were right on the same plane. And then there is her biggest hit, which stayed as number one on the charts for 14 straight weeks. Take another look.
So now I'm going to ask you a tough question, Clive, because you've had so many artists over so many years and there are so many big egos. Is Whitney the artist of your career? Well, I would say from the point of view of discovering um, of artists ab initio, right from the start, um, I think that Whitney and Patti Smith, um, it's hard to compare. Whitney, Patti Smith, and Earth, Wind, and Fire, perhaps, with Springsteen. You can't compare it. And So you know, it's like I'm asking, which is your favorite child? <laughs> exactly. I mean, But what sets Whitney apart? Unique. What is it about her that makes her special? She is unique as probably the greatest contemporary singer of all time. And that um, her peers, everybody in the industry, you go to today's artists, you go to Jennifer Hudson, you go to the past years to a Natalie Cole, who influenced you the most? And they would say, Whitney Houston. A little older generation would have said Aretha Franklin. So that Whitney and Aretha, I was blessed to be involved with Aretha. I never discovered her, but when she was approaching 40 and her relationship with Jerry Wexler was over and she didn't know if she could have another hit, she saw what I was doing with Dion Warwick with I'll Never Love This Way Again. She called me, she cooked dinner for me. We decided to collaborate. I am very, very proud of the relationship and the friendship I have with Aretha Franklin. Of course, the Whitney story doesn't end so well. There was the obvious drug problems. And at one point, you stage an intervention at your home in Pound Ridge, New York, and try to get her into rehab and warn her about what happened to Janis Joplin. And then in 2012, on the day of your famous Grammy Eve, the big party you throw the night Night before before the, the the, the Grammys, you find out that she has died of an overdose. How devastating, given, you know, you, you said we were like this. How devastating that you couldn't save her. It's painful to think about it. It was intensely painful to learn of it. Um, anyone who's lost a family member knows what the pain of losing a loved one was, so that this was not just an artist that I was professionally uh, involved with. Um, We had a friendship. Uh, I knew that she was flirting with disaster, not being able uh, to eventually cure herself of her drug problem. She valiantly tried. She went to rehab. We thought that she had beaten it, so it was intensely painful. As the song goes, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, we've dealt with two of them. So let's deal with the third one, sex. Is it true that when you signed Janis Joplin that she wanted to seal the contract, the record contract, with more than a kiss? The answer is totally true, yes. But it was a compliment. I mean, So what said- happened? What, what, what was said? What was said was that we were in the corporate structure of the CBS BlackRock building and we were signing the papers. <laughs> I, I love the scene. And she said, you know, this is so corporate, so impersonal. We should go to bed together. I said, what a compliment. Janice, I don't mix business with pleasure, but thank you for 
saying what you said. That was said. a very gentlemanly way to handle that. That's the way I handled it. <laughs> now I have another question, which is that you've been married twice, you have four children, and you have revealed in your autobiography and a documentary about you that about 40 years ago, you began leading a bisexual life. And, and the question I have is, for a nice Jewish kid from Brooklyn, how difficult was that to come to terms with? It was nothing that I had ever dealt with. I married twice. Um, sex was fine uh, with both wives. It didn't break up for that. When I was divorced from my second wife, um, I did open myself up to the person rather than the gender. And it's not that I found that sex for me, and I know in future life, that the degree of bisexuality, which is more common among young people today, where you find this artist, that artist, sleeping with a guy or sleeping with a girl, depending on the mom. I didn't do that because I'm still attracted to women. But it's not believed, either straight or homosexuals. Once you have same sex, you're gay. Well, that's not so. Uh, the word bisexual is, yes, you can be attracted to both based on the person. That's what I opened up myself to. And I wanted my four children and my eight grandchildren to know that that was never the reason for... Uh, either married to Anne. And, and just one more question in this regard. Given your very conventional, traditional upbringing, was that hard to deal with? Was that something that, you know, you felt embarrassment or shame about? Or is it just, this is the life, this is just who I am? I think the latter. I mean, I knew it was not understood well. Um, but I... I never just saw a male. I've never been to a gay club or, or what have you. I just opened myself up to the person, and I dealt with uh, two or three males or two or three females and made a commitment um, to a male for a relationship. But you're right. It's different. It's not conventional. It's not... Uh, I didn't go to a psychiatrist to deal with the issue. Well, I do have one last question then, which, because of what you just said. Why did you decide to share it with the world? Once I wrote my autobiography, there's no way that you could write an autobiography and be honest without including that information. So I did. It was germane to me who I am, and there was no way I was not going to put it in my autobiography. Finally, at age 90, you are the chief creative officer of... Sony Music Entertainment. How involved are you still in finding artists and material? And this is the one question I'm going to ask you that you're going to get mad at me. When are you going to retire? I don't uh, think of retirement as long as I'm having fun. My parents died. My mother from high blood pressure, my father from high blood pressure. She was 47. He was 56. I take a pill every morning that, that deals with that issue so that I'm grateful that I still have the energy and the passion. And as long as I can do it, I'll do it. Sounds to me like you're going to be still doing it at 100. Well, Clive, thank you. This has just been fascinating and a delight. I was excited about getting to sit down with you, and it has been everything I hoped it would be. Well, isn't that nice? Thank you.
Thank you. Clive Davis has shown an almost uncanny ability to, to discover new artists and recognize hit songs. In the process, he's won five Grammy Awards and been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Not bad for a guy who says he knew nothing about music when he launched his career as a lawyer more than 60 years ago. Thanks for watching. Catch us every Sunday night on CNN and keep streaming anytime you want right here on HBO Max to find out who's talking next.